Well, this, this morning we had quite a constellation of readings. I think we had the Psalm 14, which was, had a sufficient gravity given to us by the choir. We had that passage from Jeremiah, which is um, hard to read in a corporate setting. And then even the, the gospel reading we have today is a um, somewhat condemning word against the scribes and Pharisees who would have no place with uh, the beloved of God. And so uh, these, these readings need some navigation in some ways. And by way of entry, I would like to begin unpacking some of their power through Psalm 14. And in particular, I want to talk about that first line of Psalm 14, which is uh, about foolishness and fools. I think for many of us today, that word fool has lost some of its, its power at least to me, when I think of that word, I, I tend to think of what people do on bachelor parties or when they go to college. Uh, but if you look at the Bible, it has very strong, powerful language about what it is to be a fool and to engage in foolishness. So, for instance, Proverbs says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing their own opinion. Sounds like that could describe a lot of people we might see on TV. Or later it says, a fool despises instruction, but whoever listens to reproof is wise. In other words, a fool is a person who won't listen to anyone and is a kind of prideful person who can simply never be taught. They believe, first off, that their way is always right, and second, if it's wrong, they'll get away with it. And there's a result to this sort of attitude, Scripture says. For instance, in Ecclesiastes, we find The toil of a fool wearies him because he doesn't know the way. It's wearisome. Later, he even says something more pointed. A fool is someone who folds his hands and eats his own flesh. In other words, a a fool can seem like they have things together, but ultimately they are on the pathway of destruction. Foolishness is wearying, and it ends only in burnout and despair. And so when we come to Psalm 14, and it opens with, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. You see, this isn't a, a, a phrase of it's theological necessarily. You probably realize this, but there was no such thing as an atheist in the early church or even in the ancient world. That did not exist. It's about a certain kind of person. Not the kind of person who says there is no God. It's about the kind of person who says, I will get away with whatever I want and God won't see. It could be easy here, I think, to imagine modern dictators or or maybe oligarchs from across the globe. I tend to think, for whatever reason, of Henry VIII and his fourth, fifth, and sixth marriages. But it's not just about them, is it? It's easy enough for any of us to do foolishness. I think I've told many of you this, privately largely, but part of my own Christian story involved an experience of being in a theological argument with some friends at night. I was in graduate school for religious studies, and there were about a dozen of us getting dinner one evening, debating lively. And I had this sudden realization, one, that God was very real, and second, that he knew everything that we were talking about. It almost felt like he was standing behind me. It was less a sort of mental realization and more of a, an existential weight that came over me. And so I immediately got up out of the pizza restaurant that we were in, got on my bike, rode home about a mile away, and whenever I had gotten to my bedroom, 
I realized I needed to study God in a different way. Because he's not just a subject like any other subject, but he is one who holds us as his subjects, of course. So my point here is fools aren't just figures from history or misanthropes or narcissists. In fact, we have all been fools. Because who here has not thought at some point, me certainly, I realize that God is real. And I know that he's watching but I'm going to do this or say this anyway. Who hasn't thought that? Well, the psalm that we read today, Psalm 14, says that that is foolishness. (laughs) And it says that everyone does it. Some of you who read this psalm closely might say, well, maybe this is a contextual issue. For instance, maybe David is writing about a specific occurrence where he was describing everyone in a particular particular, uh, place, but not us. And that could be compelling in some way, except that Paul, St. Paul, many centuries later, uses this very psalm (laughs) to make the point that we all stand condemned under the scrutiny of the law. In Romans, he writes, Who is better off, Jew or Gentile, Israel or Greek, enlightened person or religious zealot? And he says, no one, neither. We are all under sin, Paul writes, and so the whole world is accountable to God, one who sees and knows everything As our Collect for Purity says at the very beginning, he even knows the inside of our own hearts. So you see, this psalm is about absolutely everyone. And what's even more interesting to me is the way it describes the outcome or the byproduct of this foolishness. Here's what I mean. If you move through and you look at verse 4, he writes, They who have no knowledge eat up my people like bread and do not call upon the Lord. In other words, rather than depend on God, the foolish person pursues their own daily goods and sustenance at the expense of others. I think this is in part why Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day, today, give us our daily bread. But what's interesting here to me is the way we typically don't think about exploitation or abuse as a byproduct of foolishness, do we? I, I tend to think of it as, a, as relating to cruelty or insensitivity. But David says that it's foolishness. The byproduct of foolishness is manipulation and exploitation, he writes. And you have to keep doing it again and again and again. And the reason being is because it will never fill you up. Idolatry, scripturally speaking, is pursuing anything other than God. And the more you pursue it, the hungrier it actually leaves you. It reminds me of a passage in Michael where he writes, they shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall put away but not preserve. They shall sow but never reap. They shall tread grapes but never drink. I felt that way. You see, the fool can seek out their own good and be successful at it and still always end up hungry. He even says in the next verse that there is an actual emotional or experiential side to this as well. You remember what, he, what it is? It comes in verse 6. He says, it is terror. And the word there could also be translated as dread, which I, I, I think is familiar to many of us. That word seems to me one that is still powerful to us. And so part of me wonders here if maybe we can reverse diagnose some of this. In other words, if many of us have felt dread or fear, if that seems to be common parlance for many of us today, might it mean that we are still clinging to some level of foolishness deep down in our hearts? 
That is, we have all been fools, surely. Everybody would consent to that. But maybe we still struggle to stop some of that foolishness. One of my very first mentors lived outside of the town I grew up in. He sort of mentored dozens and dozens of young men. Uh, The most remarkable thing about this man was the more you got to know him, the more you spent time around his fireplace talking and praying with him, the more he would tell you about his sinfulness. Here's this man, incredibly wise, with all kinds of knowledge. And to get to know him was for him to share his brokenness with you. It was remarkable because he showed me that we have all and still cling to some of our foolishness. But you see, that brings us to the remarkable truth about the Christian faith, which is that there is another entirely different role for fools in this world. Listen to this. St. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He then writes in the same letter, we are fools for Christ's sake. And again, the message of the cross, he says, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us being saved, it is the power of God. And so you see, to be a Christian, I believe, isn't to become immediately wise. It is to become a different kind of fool altogether. It's because God seeks out fools. Do you realize that's what the parable in our gospel reading is about? God seeks out sinners and fools. And the church, you see, has always actually had a very special place for fools inside of its warm, warm embrace. There is uh, even an old tradition in the Russian Orthodox Church I learned about uh, that has named this sort of aspect, this sort of holy foolishness that we discover when we engage with the saints of God. I have a word for it. It's called Eurodivi. Eurodivi means holy fool. It's that kind of person, you all have encountered it, who uh, doesn't quite fit into the world as it is. But because of that, they're able to say true things with a sort of piercing insight and plain-spoken wisdom. The most famous example of the Eurodivi, actually, aside from, if you've read um, Dostoevsky, do you remember Alyosha? He gets in an argument with his brother. Alyosha was was one of these. Anyway, the most most famous figure from history who was a Eurodivi was a man named Nikola Salas. He was basically a, a, a beggar living in the Russian city of Skov. We don't know tons about him. But he was present when Ivan the Terrible, who was the very first uh, czar of greater Russia, went about the country uh, pursuing an empire. So he would overtake cities, slaughter any people who resisted him, and then take all of the goods of that town and claim it as Russia's. So Ivan was going about from town to town, and he eventually got to Salas' hometown. Everyone fled. Everyone left. But in the middle of the town square was Salas, waiting on Ivan the Terrible to come into the middle of the city. And as Ivan got there, Salas began to approach him with a gift. His act of hospitality to the incoming czar was to offer him in his fist a raw piece of meat. It was a defiant act of hospitality, of course. And Ivan was so put back, he was so confused about the whole situation that he paused, and then Salas, the holy fool, began to rebuke him publicly in front of his entire army. And the czar was, again, so 
confused and uh, mystified that he actually ran away. He left. You see how that works. When the way of the cross is your way of life, when the abundance of God is your food, then your foolishness can become powerful. Again, the foolishness of the cross is power to those of us being saved. The dread of Ivan the Terrible can suddenly become a vantage of, of courage, a place for hopefulness. And of course, you see, this is exactly what happens in our gospel reading as well. Because you remember all of the people who flock to Jesus. You'll note it was not Pharisees, it was not Sadducees, it was not the religious elite. The wise people of Israel did not flock to Jesus. It says explicitly it was sinners and then who? Tax collectors. People who made a living off of exploiting the poor. In other words, the very people that our psalm is writing about were the people who flocked to Jesus. Fools. They flocked to him. And so what that means, I believe, is that the only real fool, according to Scripture, is the one who doesn't realize that they've been foolish. The only real fool is the one who doesn't realize that they have been foolish. That's, in fact, what exa- exactly what our Jeremiah reading is about, is people who resisted the instruction of God. It's, it's Pharisees who will never be taught. It's the one, again, as uh, the proverb said, who despises instruction and takes no pleasure in understanding. That's the fool. But you see, there's good news for all of us fools, and it's this. First, our foolishness, as is apparent in our gospel reading, is never a barricade against the mercy of God. Again, look at Jesus. He speaks with fools. He touches fools. He heals fools. He eats with fools. All of his entourage, his people, they are fools. Peter, the great fool of the apostles, and Paul, the great fool who persecuted all of them, they become the foundations of his people because their foolishness gets changed into something else. Which brings me to the second part of this, which is that God converts the foolishness of men into the foolishness of those who are being saved. See, that's the good news. You can become a new kind of fool. And I'm only hoping there's a little bit of transfer. I might have a leg up. You see, all of those descriptions that St. Paul gave us in Corinthians of holy foolishness, his point is they are all sourced in this one object of immense foolishness, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. You realize that? It is where God trades out glory for shame. It's where he trades out rest for dread. It's where he trades out life for death. And the good news of it is when he trades out all of what's good for nothing, he gives all of what's good to us. That profound act of foolishness becomes our source of life and hope, friends. You realize this? Forgiveness looks foolish to the world. Malone told me that just the other day. It was a brilliant insight. And the point is, you and I, friends, we are invited to be instructed, to be converted into this new kind of foolishness all together. And so when you enter into the gentle and lifelong continued instruction of Jesus, we all have this great chance to become fools who glory not in our own success, but in the glory of others, in the glory of the cross. So the question I would pose to all of you is not, will you abandon your foolishness forever? I hope not. 
It is, will you be instructed by Jesus and thereby transform your foolishness into grand generosity? Friends, I commend you, be instructed by Jesus and your foolishness will become wisdom. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.